you know, school <laughs> is a very complicated apparatus that is for the learning of children. But when you have children coming in, more than half of the kids coming into school are low income. You know, 14% of the kids coming to school have a disability. You know, one in four of, of school-age children, I believe, have a, at least one immigrant parent. They're dealing with so many different things that are not, they're outside of the purview of, a, of an eight-hour school day to address or to fix. And so ha- no matter how much money you have flowing into the school coffers, it's not going to be able to address those issues. The child poverty rate in America was 16% as of the 2020 census. This amounts to 11.6 million children living in poverty in the United States. Why are so many kids growing up in poverty in this country? How does the lack of social safety nets disproportionately affect children in America? And what can we do to support children so they can learn, grow, and thrive in an ever-changing world? This is what I want to know. And today I'm joined by Anya Kamenetz to find out. Anya Kamenetz is an author and speaker who focuses on generational justice, climate change, and education as a senior advisor to the Aspen Institute. A former NPR correspondent, she has reported on education for many years. Her latest book, The Stolen Year, explores the impact of the pandemic on the public school system, an important social safety net for children. She joins us today to discuss how we can raise thriving kids in an ever-changing world. Anya, welcome to the show. Anya, I'm going to tell you, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, You uh, have always had an interest in education. And I have to jokingly say that it's great for me to interview you after (laughs) years of you periodically interviewing me, I almost feel the power position has changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm getting a little nervous now, but um, I do appreciate you reaching out. And um, I've always I've always appreciated, you know, the way that you've uh, tried to answer questions and be an honest broker. So I'm, I'm excited that you're in this position. Yeah. And I'm excited about your work. I mean, you, you always, uh, you try to get behind and underneath an issue. You weren't always topical and surface. I'm not just saying that. Uh, and now with the work you're doing, uh, it's, it's exciting to see where you're headed and that you're trying to take it to the next level. But, you know, in doing research on you, which, you know, I did some research, but it's always like, what is she writing? What is she saying? What is she into? Uh, I understand you come from a family of writers. That was pretty yeah. interesting to hear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my parents are both English professors at Louisiana State University. And my mother writes fiction. My father writes nonfiction and poetry, actually. Oh, wow. And so you had no choice but to write. (laughs) You know, I think that when I was little, I wanted to be an editor because my idea was that my I would be my parents boss then if I was. Oh, I get it. I get it. (laughs) You know, uh, you wanted to be editor so you could edit what they wrote and clean it up. (laughs) But um, how did you you know, when you became a writer, how did you decide to get into journalism? And then what led the focus to education, which you became known for? So the pivot for me happened in college where, you know, I was taking writing classes, I was performing poetry, and I was working on my campus magazine. And my sophomore year, me and my friend, we broke a story and it was a local kind of a campus scandal. And everybody was rushing to get the magazine as soon as it came out. Um, And the daily newspaper wasn't covering it because it was about their editor, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden I had this feeling of, oh, people are 
excited to read what I'm writing because it's about something that's important to them. Where before I was like, please come to my little poetry reading. There'll be like 10 people there. (laughs) Um, And I think for me, that also connected, of course, to my interest in justice and in, and, you know, doing what's good and doing what's right. And, you know, as much as my parents were very much um, kind of literary artistic types, they also really impressed on me the importance of community and activism and doing the right thing. And so I think that's really where journalism sat for me in the intersection between those two. You talk about justice. Uh, I want to, I want to, in a little bit, talk to you about your newest book, Stolen Year. You've written several books, but uh, you, you mentioned justice. I, I want you to, I want you to tease out for us this notion of generational justice because that obviously takes on different connotations. What do you mean by that? What does that mean? So I think in the world, and I would say for me personally, and certainly in the education space, we have been growing in our understanding of the intersectional identities, right? The how people are affected by the racial group they grew up in, the neighborhood, the zip code they grew up in, poverty, whether they are an immigrant. And these are all really important things. Disability status. These don't define us, but they are important in thinking about who is heard and who has um, the resources that they deserve. Oftentimes we forget to include children in that category and, and understand that children are cherished and loved, but they are also very vulnerable. And they are oftentimes forgotten because they lack some of the rights and recognitions that adults have. And so there are many, many people who wanna come in and say, we are doing what's best for the kids, but we're not always listening to them. And so when I think about generational justice, I think about it in those ways. I've also been thinking about it in terms of, you know, we live in an aging society and people who are older than the standard also start to feel forgotten in different ways. And so can we build that empathy to think about you know, just because I'm not working age or I'm not, you know, quote unquote, the most productive member of society, do I still have value? Yeah. That's right. You have often, and I've read some of your stuff, you clearly don't think we're treating our children well. Why is that? Well, um, I mean, I can give you this statistical answer, right? We have this uh, inordinate number of children living in poverty in one of the richest countries in the world. And that's because we lack the basic building blocks of family-friendly policies that all of our peer countries have adopted in the last, you know, 40, 30, at least 20 years. And that is uh, child support for families. So a child tax credit, which is like social security for children, um, paid family leave that allows people to take off time to be with their kids and, and doesn't push so many mothers out of the workforce and uh, childcare subsidies. So recognizing that zero to five is just as important as uh, five to 18, and maybe even more so when it comes to wanting quality care and education for kids. And without those policies, um, we just have a lot of suffering, frankly. I mean, we have a lot of kids um, living in single parent households. We have a lot of kids who are uh, going into the foster care system every year, um, oftentimes because of neglect, which is really a symptom of poverty. And um, we just don't have the outcomes that we would expect to have, especially for, you know, as you know, for all the money that we spend on education. Why don't we have more of those subsidies, those programs, those dollars allocated in the way they should be for children? So in my book, The Stolen Year, in the process of researching that, I really dug into that question and and I found some surprising answers. Um, I found that, uh, you know, this has oftentimes been considered the domain of philanthropy, and it's been considered the domain, 
especially starting the Victorian era, we saw some of the first efforts, right, to make children's lives better through philanthropic efforts. So charity nurseries, day nurseries, um, you know, the orphan trains and um, poor houses, workhouses for mothers and children. And these were things that were sort of pet projects of wealthy women in society, often white women. And they kind of stayed that way. There wasn't the appetite to make them matters of policy um, in a different way from other, other areas in society. And what I kind of describe is how you know, we allowed public schools to grow and develop and take on more and more roles, but we didn't have the appetite for whatever reason to make these public institutions. And it took a lot of work to establish things like the free lunch program. Um, later on in a more, you know, tricky way, and I want to be able to include myself in this conversation, like the feminist movement in the seventies also didn't necessarily take up children as their main topic because what they wanted was economic power. So they were arguing for, women's equal participation in employment. They didn't always argue at the same time for, we also want childcare because there was a tricky, that was a tricky conversation to have because women wanted to be seen as people that could have careers. And when men had careers, they didn't have to worry about what was happening to the kids. So if they uplifted children and said, Mm. we want rights for women and rights for children, it becomes sort of harder to, to make that argument. And that's my feeling that, you know, you know, no pun intended, that child serving uh, programs, institutions kind of became orphaned in the American uh, political sphere. I hope you're enjoying this episode of What I Want to Know, one of the most downloaded K-12 education podcasts in the country. Make sure you don't miss any of these important topics. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast or social media platform. And leave a rating and review so we can bring you more of the topics you want to hear about. Now back to the conversation. But but what about the argument that others will make? Because again, I came from the political world, as you know, and everyone says, I will put more money in education. I will give Mm -hmm. more money to teachers. And, you know, even right now, You know, you hear during these budget sessions that are taking place in state legislatures around the country, people are saying we've increased education spending. Why doesn't though? Why don't those increases matter with the things you're talking about? You know, that is such an excellent question. And it's worth scrutinizing. I think that oftentimes on the left, there's an allergy to talking about you know, why we're not getting value for our money in education, because there isn't this kind of huge gap in education spending in K-12 in the U.S. that we see on the child welfare side, right? Um, And I'll just, I mean, this is the most shocking number on that. Across the OECD countries, the wealthy countries, the average annual spending on zero to five is somewhere between fourteen and $15,000. And on America, it's 500. Mm. So it's a very dramatic gap. Um, the reason, I think the shorthand reason that education spending doesn't improve child welfare is that they're two different things. You know, school <laughs> is a very complicated apparatus that is for the learning of children. But when you have children coming in, more than half of the kids coming into school are low income. You know, 14% of the kids coming into school have a disability. You know, one in four of, of school-age children, I believe, have a, at least one immigrant parent. They're dealing with so many different things that are not, they're outside of the purview of a, of an eight hour school day to address or to fix. And so ha- no matter how much money you have flowing into 
the school coffers, it's not going to be able to address those issues. And also, isn't part of the problem, Anya, the fact that uh, we're so, everything's so bifurcated or segregated in terms of roles and responsibilities. You've got human services, they deal, you know, in most state and county governments with, in local governments, the uh, social services system, uh, the, the child welfare things you're talking about. Then you've got the education system and, you know, sometimes the social services system, that's where they would provide the nurses for the schools. But, you know, because of the budget, they can't provide the, the full complement so that every school gets it. And as you said, the school budget is dealt, it deals with so many bureaucratic needs that it, you know, is it morphs into over time. Should there be a separate child welfare system and how would it coordinate within the structure of public education? Because already it's so hard for that public education system to discharge its responsibilities around teaching and learning. Uh, that's a real policy want question, and I really appreciate you being interested in digging into this. One of the most provocative areas of research that I found in the book was about administrative burden. And that's just a fancy way of saying that it is very hard to access the services that people need when they're in poverty. And it requires, you know, proving eligibility. I mean, I had a, you know, one of the mothers in my book, she is... Yeah. Um, got eight children, so you know, single mom, yeah. um, living in really super substandard housing, and she spends her life going from office to office, yeah. you know, <laughs> no. appointment to appointment, trying to prove her eligibility for this and for that. You know, getting the subsidies, the WIC, WIC is different from food stamps. So, That's like, right. right? So, like, why why are they two different programs? You know, if you sign up, you should just be able to say, "I need milk and I need diapers," right? So that just that's one example. So. You know, uh, we could streamline the bureaucracy and we could have a child welfare oriented system. We could also, I think, simplify it with a cash based system, you know, cash subsidies that are not restricted and again are universal, as well as a child care subsidy system, which I think, um, you know, practically speaking, you need to subsidize both sides of that. You need to subsidize the child care centers and so they can pay their workers a living wage as well as subsidizing the fees. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, in, in the end, it just becomes a lot simpler to reduce a lot of those barriers, get rid of a lot of that bureaucracy, and just give families the resources that they need. And, you know, the other thing, I love those ideas. And the other thing which has worked, it's been episodic because um, the bureaucracy of schools and local governments awful, often stranglehold this idea. But since, you know, kids spend the bulk of their day in schools— and, you know, even if the family's trying to access certain social services to help the children, there has to be that coordination with the school system. How has COVID helped or hurt this coordination that needs to take place? Uh, that's such a great question. So one of the schools that I spent time in when I was researching the book is called Buena Vista Horace Mann. And it's actually the first public school in the country to have a, an on-site homeless shelter. Um, in the Mission District in San Francisco. And they they do, they co on this logic that they really want to be able to surround those families with all the different kinds of support that they need. And it's incredibly helpful. I mean, I talked to their on-the-ground coordinator um, of the, helping get kids with their material needs as well as their mental health needs. Um, and I think that there's a huge interest in that. And there, I think with the, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was for kids that were able to stick with remote learning 
there was a lowering of some of the barriers paradoxically between home and school. There's more communication now between home and school. A lot more teachers have the parents' cell phone numbers and they're used to using these communications. The The video screen was oftentimes a portal into kids' experiences and in their home life. And so there's much more awareness now of those things. Um, but, you know, I think that the the appetite for kind of radical reimagining of what we deliver at school is lower because because, you know, a lot of school districts are really struggling. They're struggling with lower enrollment, which very soon with the cliff of the ARP funds is going to mean lower budgets. Off, off, here in New York, it already has meant cuts at certain schools. And so the idea of increasing services and increasing coordination, I just feel like is becoming, uh, it's going by the wayside with the kind of burnout and the let's get through the next day mentality that we have. Well, especially budget cuts, that means we can't do more, but how can we do it differently with what we have? Yeah, I mean, that's really the key question. Um, I do see schools trying to, for example, with mental health needs, right? Yes. They can't get by um, with the same uh, level of support that they had before. So they're they're looking for community partnerships for referrals. You know, the expansion of telehealth makes resources and therapists more available in rural parts of the country. So they are kind of trying to expand out um, what they can do and, um, also kind of like grow their own. So there, I know there's been some programs to bring people in and get them trained up as school counselors while they're working in other positions in the school. How do we approach this cultural challenge of just generally understanding that we put our kids first in every sense of the word and, and we actualize that as well? In your work, in your research, uh, anything come to mind as to how we can change that, that dynamic here? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, I really believe that it's about activating values that might be latent in people because when you really get them, give them a chance to get in the mind frame and think about what do you really care about in this world? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? You know, what do you want to be remembered for? Chances are they're going to talk about young people and future generations. And I'll give you an example of that. You know, in the work that I'm doing now, um, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about climate change. And we did a survey where we asked people, you know, uh, about their concerns about climate change. And basically two thirds of them were like very concerned. One third are this less concerned group of Americans kind of like, maybe not, they're not, they're not deniers, but they're, they think it's been politicized and overblown. But when you ask them, do you think that we need to do something about climate change as a moral imperative for the sake of the young and future generations, even the least concerned, half of them agreed. Half of them said, yeah, you know what? I don't think it's that big a deal. But when you think about the young people and where things are going, yeah, I do think we have a moral imperative. And that's really powerful. It really is. But what do we do with that, though? I mean, I think that there has to be and, and we see it even like with the social media, with TikTok, you know, you know, bucket challenges. There's just stuff that is mm -hmm. I, I used to overused the word sometimes, episodic, where, you know, something happens yeah. and, you know, okay, you know, go fund it or, or whatever. But there has to be something that sticks. And I don't know, you know, far be it for me to say, because I'm a recovering politician, but <laughs> I don't know if we can rely on our leaders. I think that building solidarity does take sustained effort. You know, we're really talking about solidarity. We're talking Absolutely. about empathy. Absolutely. Right? Um. And, but what I also find is that solidarity comes as a result of people experiencing the, the, the value of it. So a little bit paradoxically, if we manage to pass rules or policies that 
bring generations together and make people feel taken care of. When you feel taken care of yourself, you know, that sense of scarcity goes away and I got mine, I got to get mine. And you start thinking a little bit more about other people. So, you know, I'm in support of figuring out how we can continue to expand social protections for everyone and and really think of this as a collective effort. But then other people kind of come in and say, well, you know, who do you think is going to be starting the businesses? Who do you think is going to be taking care of the old people? If you saddle everybody with this debt, you know, is it really going to be uh, the, the future that you want to have as someone who isn't going to be, you know, around forever? So I think there's there's got to be room to frame these these questions in a different way. I hope that there is. Let me ask you one last question. This is what I really want to know. When, you know, you've, you've, you've uh, worked in education, you've been to schools, you write about schools. Um, what advice would you give to today's teachers who now have a better window into what's going on in their kids' world? Teachers often have been called upon to be social services workers. And even today, with the poverty rate having grown as much as it has, it's even more acute and more intense. What advice would you give the teachers as they grapple with trying to balance their learning responsibilities with the day-to-day social challenges of children? And I ask you that question, I know you're not a teacher, but you've seen sort of the good, the bad, the ugly. So it, it, from your vantage point, what would you say to those teachers who actually may be listening? Well, first of all, thank you for your work and thank you for your courage and perseverance. I know it has not been an easy few years. Um, I would share that what I have learned in my work that has helped me is to embrace the social and emotional side of what you're doing. I mean, you're never, it was never just your job to put information into kids' heads. It's always been about relationships. It's always been about the whole child. It's always been about how they're learning and growing in their interactions with people, building empathy. And we're trying to create, you know, little humans here. And no matter if you teach math or science or, um, you know, PE, like there are so many opportunities to make a difference in a kid's life. And so, maybe stop thinking about teaching and learning as separate from these other concerns and, mm-hmm. and sort of embrace approaches to teaching and learning that can help your kids learn as they feel a sense of belonging, as they feel seen, um, and as they feel more connected to others in the community that you're creating in your classroom. Mm, Anya, I really love that answer. Thank you so much for all you're doing and thank you for joining us on What I Want to Know. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Thanks for listening to What I Want to Know. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you can explore other episodes and dive into our discussions on the future of education and write a review of the show. I also encourage you to join the conversation and let me know what you want to know using hashtag WIWTK on social media. That's hashtag W-I-W-T-K. For more information on Stride and online education, visit stridelearning.com. I'm your host, Kevin P. Chavis. Thank you for joining What I Want to Know.